0: Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from Stat. I'm Allison DeAngelis,
1: I'm Adam Feuerstein. and I'm Damian Gardner.
0: It's Thursday, October 27th, and here's what we're going to be talking about this week.
1: In political races around the country, pandemic shutdowns, COVID vaccines, and the prospect of arresting Anthony Fauci have become campaign rallying cries. Stat's Sarah Overmall joins us to explain the rise in anti-science rhetoric. And we'll also discuss the latest news in the life sciences.
0: But first, a word from our sponsor.
1: rapid development of COVID-19 vaccines has pushed mRNA forward in the fight against cancer and complex diseases. Scott Ripley, General Manager for Nucleic Acid Therapeutics at Cytiva, is here to tell us
2: more. mRNA is joining other scientific advances like CRISPR, immuno-oncology, and intracellular antibodies to drive new treatments and transform patient care. With mRNA clinically validated, therapies are accelerating through to approval. Biopharma is getting ready for an explosion in manufacturing demand at all scales. And at Cytiva, we're thrilled to help them along on that journey. You can learn more at citiva.com forward slash advanced therapeutics. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com forward slash advanced therapeutics.
3: So, starting off, this week was a big one for earnings reports from various drug companies, which means there were hours and hours of conference calls to varying degrees of interest, mostly tending toward not being terribly interesting. However, on Thursday morning, uh, Al Nylon Pharmaceuticals had its call, and, and there were a few things discussed, but one really stood out, which was a decision the company apparently made in response to the Inflation Reduction Act, and more specifically, that piece of legislation's effect on drug prices going
1: forward. Adam, what did they say? Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's a as much a decision as sort of a, a threat to make a decision. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was it, it was noteworthy. So this morning when Nylam reported Q3 earnings, um, they noted that for their drug uh, um, which is actually already approved uh, for a rare disease, but they're talking about, uh, you know, efforts to expand that into other rare diseases. And, and they said, and I'll, I'll just quote them, they said, they're, quote, considering options for the best path towards advancing... An RNAi therapeutic for the treatment of Stargardt disease—that's another rare disease—and so basically they say they're not going to initiate a phase three uh, study of vitrusuran in Stargardt disease, which was expected to start uh, later this year, before the end of the year. Um, and so they're just kind of—and and, they—and they mentioned specifically that uh, the reason for this is that they want to continue to evaluate the impact of the Inflation Reduction Act. And I think what's noteworthy here is just that this is maybe, I, I, to my mind, maybe the first time that we've seen a uh, biotech or a pharma company specifically mention the IRA, the, the you know, again, the Inflation Reduction Act as, as a reason for, you know, R&D decision making, so to speak.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally, Adam. I think that everything that I've heard up to this point, I mean, from my perspective has been from investors who are deciding, you know, either what public stocks to buy or what private biotechs to, you know, invest in. This is, I think, the first time that we've heard a company say that they weren't going to pursue previous plans for a drug. I mean, we're expanding the market of a drug that's already approved um, because of this infl- inflation reduction act. And I do I, I agree with your point. It kind of feels like this is more of a, you know, kind of like. Gauntlet thrown at the feet of Congress of well, we don't like this decision, and so and
1: it's like we're going to take our football and go home.
0: Exactly, kind of
1: and it is a weird. it again, I think you know, obviously, this is we have to sort of flesh this out, and 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 maybe the company will elaborate further. Um, but what strikes me here as just I don't know, weird, strange, interesting is that you know, uh, you know, I don't want to get into all of the details of the IRA and sort of how Medicare can is going to sort of how it's going to impact drug pricing with Medicare. But, you know, but simply put, like, you know, Medicare has can basically the, the the act or the law now gives them the power to kind of choose a set number of drugs, top selling drugs each year and negotiate prices. And so this this decision by an sort of assumes that that this drug will make enough money to get on the radar screen of Medicare. Um I don't know if anyone really other people have assumed that. It, it seems like an odd drug, you know, for a rare disease uh, to sort of have al be concerned that, you know, that this may be a target of Medicare.
3: So speaking of, of curious details, there is no shortage of private venture capital firms with an interest in biotech na- nowadays. But uh, Allison, you had a story this week about a relatively new one who's, Personnel makeup is maybe a little different from some of its peers in the space. Tell us about Time BioVentures.
0: Yeah, Damien, I have been uh, revisiting some music of the you know late uh, you know two thousands into the twenty tens um, while work while working on the story about this new firm, Time BioVentures, which is co founded by this guy um, D A Wallach, previously of the band Chester French, a band that I think was described by someone as being famous as a band that people were talking about, less so maybe for the music, though now I've had their their lead single stuck in my head for a couple of days. So that says a lot about that. So yeah, D.A. Wallach um, has teamed up with uh, this guy, Timothy Wright, a uh, former Novartis Pfizer uh, drug developer, um, and together they formed this venture capital firm to invest in biotech and some health tech um, creating, I mean, really what I just thought of as such an odd couple in the biotech investing world and one that I think brings to the forefront this question that everybody has had as, you know, kind of more of the California Silicon Valley folks get into biotech investing of, well, who are the appropriate people to be investing in biotech these days?
1: Yeah, the story... You'd name drop a lot of people in the story. And I'm not saying you did this on purpose. I mean, you did this because it seems like D.A. Wallach uh, is an incredible networker. Maybe that's the way to describe him. He just seems to meet a lot of other famous people or people who are more famous than him and then gets them to give him money or to just or get involved in their ventures. It, it, that's kind of when I read the story, it was remarkable to me. I was like, wow, this guy really he is in the mix in in so many he's got, in so many different circles, you know, Hollywood and science and finance.
0: Yeah. I mean, to draw like one thread, he like the origin of like him and Tim Wright pairing up is like goes back to a Grammy's. Party that was hosted by Clive Davis, at which Diddy, aka Puff Daddy, uh, aka P. Diddy, um, <laughs> introduced D.A. Wallach to billionaire Ron Burkle. Ron has been, uh, you know, since then. A you know, very good friend and I mean colleague to D A. This they had actually formed a separate um, healthcare investing firm back in 2015.
1: And Ron Burkle is the grocery store magnate from California, billionaire. Yeah, uh, friends of Bill and Hillary, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Yes, and exactly the type of person who you would expect. And I'm being facetious here to then you know come 20 like 18 or so. It's it basically sets Da Wallach up, you know, brings him into a conference room at Caliber, um, you know, a, a research organization that's associated with Scripps um, out in you know the San Diego area, and then um, introduces him to like some of the folks at Caliber, who then introduce Da to Tim Wright and kind of create this little you know marriage of two very opposite figures who now are going to be investing in startups. <laughs>
1: Damon, do you have any thoughts about uh, what we can read into this venture based on D.A. Wallach's music career, uh, you know, with the band Chester French? I don't know if you you were listening to them back in the early 2000s. I was there. Um, Yeah,
3: I, I do recall that moment. I do recall something, some bit of confusion as to why these two Ivy League white guys were friends with Pharrell Williams and Kanye West. There were, there were mutterings of uh, what is used in the music business, the phrase industry plant, although I don't actually know. But, you know, it does seem like kind of, of a piece, I was in reading your story, of this kind of like benighted, almost like Forrest Gump-like existence of this guy, which stands out to us. And, and you can imagine traditional biotech types kind of looking askance at his pathway to this point, but also probably zooming out in what we now call venture capital, but what used to just be called private equity or just like being rich, being a guy who knows a lot of guys, and it is mostly males um, in, in this world, has long been a way of connecting people and ma- moving money around. And, you know, maybe we'll see how Time BioVentures plays out, but conceivably doing something positive with that money. So, in a way, the, the D.A. Wallach story
1: is a, a deeply American story that, that I recognize from, from time immemorial. I mean, Bob Nelson who managing partner of Arch and, you know, a, a pretty well known, respected, if not quirky venture capitalist in bi- in the biotech world is an advisor to to D.A. Wallach and this new time by ventures, as is Nobel laureate Jim Allison. So they have some heavy hitter sort of science types. Yeah. Helping them out.
0: I think, you know, Damian, your point is absolutely right that th- this is this has long been a business model that has worked in the, in the investing world you know the right people in the right places and that gives you insight into you know what kind of deals are happening now like da did kind of say in our interview um you know there he sees like two ways of kind of becoming successful as an investor is like one is like basically getting out there like kind of piggybacking on you know top vcs deals you know using those relationships to kind of piggyback on those deals and the other which Time BioVentures wants to do is really to do the deals that nobody else is doing and kind of be a little bit contrarian and say like yeah we're going to make some really bold choices because that's how you get you know that's how you seek out really great returns so we will see how that fares for them
1: and maybe there'll be a Chester French reunion and they can play (laughs) uh, they can play with Jim Allison's band at some medical meeting
0: 81-year-old Anthony Fauci is on his way out of the federal government. But you wouldn't guess that from some of the campaign rhetoric in this year's midterm elections.
3: When I am your governor, there will be no mandates and no lockdowns. Actually, actually, let me let me revise that just a little bit. I want to lock somebody down. And it's that liar... Dr. Fauci. That was Carrie Lake, a candidate for governor of Arizona, who is among many Republicans for whom pandemic shutdowns, COVID vaccines, and Fauci himself have become campaign rallying cries in 2022. Stat Washington correspondent Sarah Overmall wrote a story on this phenomenon, and she joins us this week to talk about it. Sarah, thanks for coming on the
1: podcast.
2: Thank you for having me, my first readout.
1: Oh, congratulations. There will be swag on the way. Uh, Sarah, why is this happening now? You know, in most of these states uh, and congressional districts, shutdowns and mass mandates are things of the past. So, So why is COVID such a wedge issue in 2022?
2: Yeah, it's surprising. I mean, in some ways, there's been even more vitriol. And I think there's two reasons for that. One is that we're two years into, almost two years into Biden's presidency, and he came into office promising to end the pandemic. We now know that there's not really going to be a mission accomplished banner moment, that that's going to happen for him. Um And during the 2020 election, President Trump was still in office. And if we go back to this time two years ago, he was you know, promising that there could be vaccines before Election Day. We didn't have vaccines and treatments yet. There weren't mask mandates officially yet. It was a different time. And so I think that's one of the reasons. The other is that this just brings about a larger question that conservatives really do rally around, is just how much reach can the federal government have in... In moments like this, when it comes to things like mask requirements, remote schooling, business shutdowns, uh, things that resonate with every voter.
0: A lot of this seems to go beyond opposition to policy and kind of like the reach of the federal government and veers into being really like anti-science in general. Why is that so resonant with some voters?
2: You know, I talked to a few pollsters about this, and, and one of the interesting things that someone said to me is that, well, first of all, there always has been sort of an anti-science, there have been anti-science communities, anti-vax communities before. It's just that it's never been so deeply partisan as it has been in this moment, especially with vaccine rhetoric. Um, I think the other interesting thing is this also is in line with the rise of populism in general, this anti-intellectual, uh, movement. And so when you have people like Dr. Fauci becoming the poster child of this and and people saying, well, he, you know, he changed his recommendations, um, it becomes this easy rallying point for Republicans to say, we don't trust these people. Um, and to make this into, unfortunately, a very partisan issue that goes in line with just general frustrations that people have had. I think that, like I said earlier, this isn't just about, you know, COVID-19, but about what the federal government can do. And that's always been a conservative tenet. It's like, can the people in Washington tell you whether you're supposed to wear masks or whether your kids can go to school? And even though a lot of that was actually fleshed out at the state and local level, it's easy to point to Democrats in D.C. and say, we've been in this for almost three years. And what do we have to show for it?
3: So are there specific races around the country that stood out to you as particularly illustrative of this back and forth?
2: Totally. Um, you mentioned Kerry Lake earlier. That's a really interesting race in Arizona because it's very tight. It's, there's an opportunity for the Democratic candidate to win, to flip to a blue, uh, you know, governorship for the first time in 17 years. But Kerry Lake has called for Fauci to be locked up or locked him down, um, whichever version of locking, um, and also openly questioned the safety and efficacy of vaccines. She's talked about wanting to um, make hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin disproven treatments in her state. Then you have in Washington state, um, Joe Kent, who is tipped to win according to sites like 538. Um He has talked also about uh, jailing Fauci for what he says, murder, and has talked about COVID as a scam. Um, he is likely to be going to the House uh, in the next congressional session. And then you have people like uh, Dr. Scott Jensen in Minnesota, who's running for the governorship and has talked about, uh, again, questioned the efficacy of vaccines and downplayed the pandemic as a whole.
1: It's interesting, uh, Sarah, that you've got two physicians running. You mentioned uh, the Jensen Uh, And then, you know, obviously you got, you know, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, you know, again, physicians kind of on the opposite side of where you think, where you would think they'd be.
2: It's really interesting. I mean, that's, that goes into this idea too of, of the repercussions, the larger repercussions of, of trust in scientific institutions. And I'd note that besides those two physicians, there are only four physicians in Congress or sorry, in the Senate right now, and they're all Republicans. And so, you know, there has been interesting rhetoric around uh, Dr. fauci around Biden's response that nevertheless bleeds into overall public confidence which is at an all-time low in scientific institutions. so when you talk to people in the public health sphere they say how are we going to remedy this before the next pandemic before the next you know public health emergency
1: So, so- zooming out Sarah, how might this dynamic affect the midterms you know and the balance of power in Washington come 2023?
2: Well, it's not looking great. Um, the House is largely expected to flip to Republicans. In the Senate, it's a very, very tight race, like one of the ones you mentioned, Dr. Oz and Fetterman, um, that could dis- establish whether there's going to be, uh, a Republican majority there. If that does happen, you know, There have been a lot of people who've already, people like uh, Kentucky Senator Rand Paul, who've promised probes into Fauci, into COVID 19 spending. Um, But this also just makes it harder in general for any president when there is one, you know chamber in Congress, let alone two, that are not going to work with him. We've already seen the repercussions in terms of COVID-19 funding, where Republicans have been unwilling to dispatch more funds. Um, and there's just going to be this general divisiveness now. And so we're going to see Biden's agenda as a whole stall. And what that means for health and science is that they still are trying to get pandemic preparedness funds in COVID-19 response funds, let alone preparedness um, out the door. And they're, you know, already thinking of what they can do without that funding and without that congressional cooperation.
0: Yeah, I know a a lot of our colleagues at STAT have highlighted, you know, areas over the, the last several months where, you know, the public health officials are calling for action, but um, there are not funds available. So what happens to federal health agencies under a GOP-controlled House or Senate? Um, do we think that there would be spending cuts? You know, you mentioned some of these probes and hearings that candidates have promised. What What are your expectations?
2: Definitely both of those things, I think. Um, on both sides of the Hill in the House and the Senate, there's been very uh, – There's been a lot of cynicism towards the CDC, what they've done and haven't done during the pandemic, and questions about why they need more funding. Um, Like I said, Rand Paul has promised to investigate Fauci, whether or not he is retired. Uh, He made that very clear after Fauci did announce his intentions to retire. Uh, And then there's also something I've never really seen before. I was watching appropriations hearings earlier this year about um, NIH spending, which has usually been a bipartisan, you know, islands like yeah give them money they need they're researching cancer they're researching alzheimer's um there's new cynicism about how they're spending their money and so i think this is going to have major repercussions for health and science as a whole and when you think about public confidence being so fragile right now it's those hearings about you know fauci or the nih research that worry me the most too because you're going to get some sound bites out of that that are going to erode confidence further i think
3: So on the elections coming this November, as you noted in your story, while a lot of this COVID rhetoric has galvanized voters in GOP districts, there is this potential counter-influence of the Dobbs ruling and the fallout thereof being something that, one, Democrats are spending money to message around in, in advertisements, and two, it seems like pollsters expect to have an effect on turnout among people in some of these races.
2: They are hopeful about that. But I think even the most hopeful pollsters, uh, like one of the Democratic consultants I talked to for this story, Jesse Ferguson, aren't necessarily saying that this will flip things in their favor, but that at least helps level the playing field. So in any two years into any president's term, there tends to be a wave of uh the other party coming into office. Uh, that's just kind of the nature of things when one party is in power. And then, of course, there are a lot of devices, divisive issues like inflation, gas prices, et cetera, that have all been in the GOP favor. But people are saying that the Dobbs decision kind of levels things for Democrats. And they're they are very hopeful that this will turn out voters. It's just a matter of what's resonating the most with voters right now. Like I said, there's just a lot of other things that are going on. So I don't know if that's going to move the needle for people or, you know, if there's going to be any sort of fundamental shift when we see people at the polls on November 8th. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.
3: That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode.
0: Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel.
1: We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't, and maybe mention your favorite Chester French song. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we
3: do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts.
0: See you next week.
3: Well, but the thing is, it, her intonation really makes it. And if I just read it flat. OK, fine. If I'm your governor, there will be no mandates and no lockdowns. And then there's applause. And the best part is, so then she says, actually, let me revise that just a little bit. I want to lock somebody down. And then there's like brewing applause. Like people are like, they, they can feel it. Like, say it, say it. And it's that liar, Dr. Fauci. Lock
1: him down. Lock him <laughs> down. Lock
3: him Those are down. Those just a weird, locking down a person is not really like English diction, but that's fine.